our guest today is Colby Smith of the Financial Times, and we're incredibly excited to have Colby. I, I, I think I speak for me too when I say that um, it's sort of overwhelming how much quality information there is in the world uh, uh, of sovereign debt, that at least um, I find myself constantly triaging. I just can't listen to or read um, all that I ought to be reading. But one person I always find time to read is Colby. Uh, she's just one of a small number of people who can distill really, really complicated stuff into a form that's comprehensible, but not simple without losing the complexity. It's actually kind of humbling, um, I have to say. Uh, so we're super excited to get to talk to Colby and welcome, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We told Colby we wanted to talk about uh, Argentina and Ecuador, and we do, although maybe we'll get a little bit, uh, a little bit beyond that. Um, but I guess um, the, the first question I wanted to ask has to do with the debt restructurings in both countries that are going on more or less simultaneously and that involve very similar issues. And yet, my understanding at least is that Argentina has come out of this looking like the bad country. And Ecuador as the good investor friendly country, the country you'd, you know, you'd bring home to your parents to meet them, like if your parents ran BlackRock or something. Um, to Colby, do you, is that really an accurate way of, the, of how investors view the situation? And if so, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think it's absolutely true that Argentina was typecast here as, as negotiating in quote unquote bad faith, um, while Ecuador was, was very much seen as, as doing the opposite here. And uh, it didn't help that these kind of situations were happening um, more or less in, in tandem uh, in a way. And I think what made this difference and, and diverging opinion so interesting was that there are quite a lot of parallels between these two countries. I mean, both are serial defaulters. Both were trying to uh, you know, restructure against the backdrop of a global pandemic. And at the same time, you actually had you know, many overlapping players involved here. I mean, you mentioned BlackRock. Um, they were you know, heavily involved in both the Argentina and Ecuador restructuring. Ashmore had kind of teamed up with them. So did Alliance Bernstein and some other players. And, uh, and so you had a lot of the same people kind of hopping from one restructuring to the other throughout the past few months, trying to kind of make sense of the situation. For me, I mean, I think the biggest difference in a way was the fact that Ecuador was able to restructure without, you know, going through a hard default, whereas for Argentina, it had notched its ninth default, um, you know, in its, in its history, really since independence um, in, in May of this year. And that really kind of hurt relations between um, bondholders and the government quite a bit, and it was a, a serious kind of point of tension. Whereas for Ecuador, they were able to, you know, come to the table with bondholders before, um, you know, a payment was due. They were able to, you know, decide to kind of push back the, the timing of that payment until August um, and had come up with, you know, a pretty clear cut plan as to how to kind of step by step walk through the restructuring and, and, and the timing in which of negotiating with the holders or, or the, with the IMF. And investors had a bit more confidence, I think, in, in the whole uh, economic approach of, of the government and its uh, commitment perhaps to this economic orthodoxy and the, and the IMF deal that it had agreed to. Um, whereas in Argentina, I think things were um, a bit more tenuous right from the start. 
Colby, um, one of the things that we were particularly excited about getting to talk to you about is investor perceptions of contract provisions. And both Ecuador and Argentina are interesting in their recent restructurings because there were contract issues. Mm-hmm. And particularly contract issues where the investors had, I think Mark would agree with me on this, but I'm interested in your point of view. Investors had reason to be angry. So let's take, for example, the so-called redesignation drama in both Ecuador and Argentina. Uh, I think we've referred to it as the gerrymandering attempt. Mm -hmm. And Ecuador actually was the first country to to put this in its disclosure statements, if I remember correctly. But no one really got up in arms, at least not that, uh, you know, we learn everything from reading you, not that we read in any of your articles, but then Argentina did it. And uh, it caused so much furor in the mm-hmm. markets, uh, uh, as, as if uh, Argentina was the one who came up with this ex post changing the voting structure thing. And I, I remember talking to some of the Argentine lawyers, and they're like, well, but we didn't even come up with this first. It's the Ecuadorians. They're the bad guys. And we thought it was fine. And I, I'm wondering whether when you talk to the investors, and you wrote about this contract clause drama, did they just miss it in Ecuador? Was it just that, you know, given that Ecuador wasn't asking for a lot, they hadn't paid attention? And then by the time Argentina came along and was saying, you know, we can only pay you 40 cents on the dollar, uh, they were like, okay, now we're thinking about holding out. And then they realized Argentina's not only paying them very little, but has all these nefarious uh, strategies to squeeze them even more. Well, no, I think it. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it was uh, the majority creditor group in in Ecuador that was, you know, supportive of of the deal. I mean, they were kind of involved pretty much from from the beginning in terms of kind of shaping the contours of of the eventual agreement that Ecuador was going to put forward. So uh, when when Ecuador was negotiating it and it came out and said that it had come to a preliminary agreement that was already with kind of the majority of creditors. So I just don't think that Ecuador's approach was seen as you know, as aggressive as perhaps Argentina, whereas the situation there was quite different. You had all of the creditors essentially, um, you know, opposing whatever the government was putting forward. At the time when redesignation and Pac-Man and, and those threats became more prominent in Argentina, it was at a time when communications had really broken down between creditors and the government themselves. So I think the whole kind of tone of the conversation was quite different that made that threat feel perhaps more pronounced or or at least that the kind of aim of, of the government was was to screw over investors in a way, whereas for Ecuador, it was seen as kind of working alongside investors. And, and I think that's why it just didn't get as much uh, focus as it did in Argentina. This is fascinating. I, I'm going to ask you a question that Mark and I have debated between a ourselves but we thought oh we'll we'll get that get the answer to this uh, from colby <laughs> this is the question uh, if my memory's right argentine government started out by telling investors they would pay them 
around 40 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. And that that was the, 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 the limit of what they could pay in order for their debt to be sustainable, especially given the uncertainties of COVID. And the investors uh, started out in the closer to 60 cent range. Yeah, that's or maybe, right. Yeah. So then comes along a redesignation and pack. And my, my sense, again, mostly from reading the press, but you talk to the investors, is that uh, the big in, uh, firms like BlackRock were reluctant to squeeze uh, sovereign debtors too much, given that there was a lot of sympathy around the globe for countries that were in distress. And in fact, mm -hmm. maybe BlackRock even made public statements about how they wanted to work with the Argentines. And, and then what happens is this, the Pac-Man redesignation stuff hits the news and uh, investors are irate and they start demanding more. They say, we, we don't want these stupid collective action clauses anymore. We don't like your trustee structures and we want more money. Mm -hmm. Now, given that we care about the money at the, at, at the end of the day, or I, I should say, given that Mark only cares about money, whereas I care <laughs> about deeper things, how much did redesignation and Pac-Man cost Argentina, if you were to guess? Because the final number that they ended up with, my sense is closer to the creditor number than the debtor number. And maybe that's where they just would have ended up. Or maybe the sort of a negotiation misstep in trying to squeeze creditors on the contract term in fact, ended up giving the creditors a hammer with which to bargain for more. Um, I, I mean, the, things settle, ended up settling at around 55 cents in the dollar. So it's absolutely true that it, that it did come in closer to kind of the, the bondholders initial ask here. Um, but I, I mean, I think one thing to, to kind of keep in mind that that was, uh, you know, there was an ongoing debate in a way about some of the benefits and drawbacks of, of putting off negotiations throughout this process. So I remember talking to investors in the lead up to, to the default, where some people were saying, I mean, what's the point in us, you know, negotiating at this time and place with the backdrop of the pandemic, when we could perhaps wait a, a little bit and, and extract, you know, uh, larger concessions from the government. And at the same time, the government was also thinking and, and actually delivered this threat towards the end of these negotiations in, in July and said, you know what, maybe, maybe we'll have more leverage later down the line and, and bondholders will be a little bit more desperate. So, I mean, this idea of kind of uh, walking away and in, in tense negotiation negotiations, I think was, was kind of, um, the, the, the tone behind all of these various barbs and, 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 and various threats. But in a way, I think, you know, I don't know necessarily if it, if it necessarily meant that the concession was larger, but it meant that the process was just much more of a struggle. I mean, it, as you mentioned, it did open up this whole conversation about, um, you know, the, the legal documents. And there were a lot of people who said, you know, we need to kind of rethink these altogether. But ultimately, I don't know how kind of serious that that approach was because that was going to require, you know, a lot more time. And it seemed the, like the, the kind of priority for, for both sides um, throughout this, this process, no matter how much they wanted to admit it or not, was to kind of get a, a you know, quick restructuring in a way done. I mean, for, for the government, it allows it to kind of move forward and, and work with the IMF and, and have, you know, Fernandez think about other domestic issues. And for bondholders, they can kind of focus on 
anything but the fact that they have these restrictions in both Ecuador and Argentina. So, I mean, I think if anything, it kind of dragged things out a little bit longer than it needed to be, but it ended up being kind of the main negotiating, uh, I guess it ended up being the, the main negotiating chip, if you will, by the end of it. So Argentina was able to say, you know what, we're going to let you keep your legal docs for, for the exchange bonds, but we can kind of hold the ground a little bit on the financials front. And they might not have had that option to use if you know that whole threat hadn't occurred in the first place. So, so Kobe, as you probably know, um, Me Too is a, a simple man who has not yet learned that many of the deeper things life has to offer can be acquired with money. I keep trying to tell him that, but he he insists that something else must be true. Um, anyway, um, I have a, a one quick follow-up question on this. So part of the one reading of the situation might be that given all this pandemic-related uncertainty, nobody really knows what the hell a definitive restructuring would look like. And that what these negotiations really are doing is setting a baseline for round two, which Mm -hmm. is going to come in who knows how many years, maybe four to five for Argentina. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's what was driving a lot of these disagreements is the anticipation that there will surely be another round of restructurings fairly soon and the desire to be in as good a position as possible when that happens? I mean, I'm sure that's a thought, you know, in the back of many investors' minds when you have a a country that's defaulted nine times and a lot of these players have been involved in, in, in the past negotiations as well. But I mean, I think a lot of it will we'll be able to see, you know, the, the real kind of scope and scale of that issue when, um, you know, the new bonds do start to trade and we see, you know, how quickly people are trying to use this agreement as a, as a chance to kind of get out um, or for, for those that have a bit more of a longer term focus. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to kind of see Argentina back in this situation again in about four or five years time, but it's absolutely true that, you know, the way in which the the restructuring um, was set up is they face, you know, a wall of maturities in in 2025. And yes, the coupons are kind of capped out at 5%, but that doesn't really change the fact that, you know, these payments are are looming in in just a few years time. There's quite a bit of skepticism really in, in, you know, some of the more kind of larger, you know, structural reforms that that can actually get done um, in that time frame when they still, you know, haven't hashed out a deal with the IMF. I mean, ultimately, I, I, I think that that's something that everyone does think about with Argentina is, okay, how does this prepare us for the next fight? But at the same time, I don't think that that was kind of so much front and center if you think about how things did end up on the on the legal front. I mean, yes, the, the exchange bondholders were able to keep their legal docs, but the, the 2016 holders didn't really get much more than what they already had, aside from some kind of of those redesignation Pac-Man, uh, that language being um, tightened up a bit. Well, great. We should, uh, we are at a good break point, I think. And so maybe we will take a two minute break and come back with Colby after that. So we are back with the second half of our conversation with Colby Smith. And I think we want to shift gears now and talk about the sort of broader financial calamity really brought on by the COVID pandemic. And so I guess just a simple question, which is whether 
we are just starting to see, Colby, the sort of early stages of what will be a widespread wave of defaults. Um, there are a lot of countries that we could name as sort of on the brink. And where do you think we're going to be in nine months, a year, year and a half, as the economic consequences magnify of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Well, could we also ask three months, Colby? <laughs> I, I, Mark, I don't know, nine I'm, months, 12 months is a little bit... I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic compared to me too. Let's, we have at least six hours, but uh, we'll let Colby <laughs> specify the, the time frame. But yes, it might not be nine months. Yeah, no, um, I don't know if it's going to be nine months or, or, or three months or anything like that. But all I know is that is that the pressure is is certainly building. Um, and, and what's been really interesting to watch is is kind of the the divergence in, in a lot of different countries, those with kind of access to, um, you know, uh, capital markets have been able to kind of build up their coffers once again. But but those that that don't have that access, it, it's it's a much kind of more dire outlook here. And and I think that that's exactly the point that a lot of multilateral institutions are getting at, that um, there are just, you know, hundreds of countries really that, that are, are, are likely to succumb in, in this type of environment where you have, you know, tourism out the window, you have exports down and you have, you know, very, very tenuous financial, uh, you know, situations to begin with. So, I mean... We had written a piece, my my colleague Robin and I, about kind of the, the coming wave of of uh, sovereign debt crises, and and I very much think that we haven't seen that full uh, that full situation play out by any stretch of the imagination. So, Colby, just following up on that that point, you know, we had the sudden stop in March of 2020, when many of us thought that we would see a bunch of sovereign defaults then, and. We didn't, in part, well, actually, we did see a bunch of defaults, more than we usually do, but not as many as I think Mm -hmm. many of us feared, and in part because the Fed and the European authorities pumped all of this money into the system, and the market seemed to get resuscitated and seemed to be willing to lend to, you know, anybody with a pulse. I mean, Brazil, despite its incredibly stupid approach to dealing with COVID, is able to borrow at uh, rates that were quite low. But I'm wondering whether uh, the markets have tightened up. I was looking at the data on uh, new uh, borrowings by emerging market type countries. I don't even say emerging market countries since there are so many countries that are not emerging markets that really should be categorized uh, in that same class these days, given how their economies are doing. And in August, there was very, very little action on the sovereign debt markets. Now, typically, I think the answer to my asking about August would be, well, you know, everybody is on vacation and everybody in this market is rich. So they have their houses in the Hamptons and they're, you know, they're, they're there. And so they can't bother to lend money, but this is not one of those situations. Many countries need money and, you know, it's like only one or two that really did significant borrowing in August. I think the one that I I was looking at yesterday was Bermuda. I did about 1.3 billion. And so is it that the markets have uh, shrunk again and only that like it's it's a big deal that Dubai raises money but uh, are the, are the really weaker countries not able to raise anymore? 
or they really are on vacation? Well, uh, I mean, I don't think that we've seen that kind of uh, this trend bear out completely. I mean, I kind of go back and forth on this point because in addition to some EM, I, I also cover U.S. rates. So have been kind of quite close to, to some of the, the action taken by the Fed. And, uh, you know, markets have, have been boosted quite a bit by their recent shift in, in their whole kind of inflation approach and, and, and this idea that they're going to kind of uh, remain in, with uh, keep interest rates incredibly low for an incredibly long time. But that's kind of the, the stance that that's been the case for 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 months now since since the March uh, ructions that, that you mentioned here. Um, and I think it's absolutely a growing concern that um, there is going to be uh, some kind of fall off in, in demand uh, for for financing uh, some of these countries or for for, you know, uh, putting money to work in emerging markets, especially when you have kind of concerns percolating about uh, US markets and, and kind of uh, uh, valuation issues there as well. So uh, I don't think anyone kind of feels comfortable with the, the rebound in markets that, that we've seen over the past few months, um, just considering, you know, how abysmal the, the, the economic backdrop is. Uh, I, I do think that policymakers have proven time and again over the past few months that they're, they're kind of willing to throw whatever uh, they need to throw at, at financial markets to kind of keep them um, moving higher and to keep, you know, financial conditions globally loose. Um, so that at least is 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 somewhat of a of a uh, you know security blanket, if you will, for some of these countries. But I think it's worth uh, you know stressing that a lot of countries just simply don't have access to to foreign investors and and foreign capital in the same way that some larger uh, you know more financially secure ones do. So uh, I, I think this is certainly a, a big concern and something that, that we're going to have to keep a close eye on. And speaking of policymakers throwing stuff, um, one of the things policymakers sort of threw, or at least um, were pushing, were these new collective action clauses, which are sort of designed in theory to... Um, as solutions for for some of the problems that we would see if we did see widespread defaults. And we were talking with Anna Gelpern a little while ago about the sort of mechanics of how those clauses work. But one of the things Mitu and I were, were talking about and wanted to, to get your reaction to is that this sort of fancy new collective action clause which was designed to solve all the world's problems by letting us just have one big vote across the whole debt stock. There's an argument, isn't there, that those clauses kind of blew up and failed totally in both Ecuador and Argentina? Is that your sense of how investors at least perceive what happened? And I guess relatedly, is that one limb aggregated voting mechanism that was the big policy innovation, is that just dead? Have we, have we decided that that's a failure? So let me, I, I want to add to Mark's question here, Colby, which is that, you know, th this, uh, we tried to ask Anna about this, and I think she said yes, but she did it in her incredibly diplomatic fashion of not wanting to offend any of the people who have been doing victory laps about that 2014 innovation. Uh, and then the first time they use it, it, it actually turns out that this one one limb thingy-me-jiggy just doesn't work. Neither Ecuador nor Argentina is able to use it. And what is even more puzzling to me is that everybody who 
was close to it seems to be saying, no, we, once we tried to use these things, they didn't work. So we then had to go back and use this old model. In fact, a model that was almost deleted from the documents. I remember in research that we had been doing interviewing people about this big 2014 innovation. One of the stories we were told was that the so-called TULIM mechanism that was retained and both Ecuador and Argentina had to use was only kept in there so as not to offend the Europeans who had those TULIM mechanisms in their bonds. Apparently, the Europeans requested that this be kept in even though nobody here in the US and London markets thought it really would work. And, you know, when I talk about London markets, I don't mean the, I mean non-Eurozone markets. And now it, A, it has blown up, but B, the reforms to the Argentine and Ecuadorian documents do not fix this problem. And that seems particularly worrying. Not only did the fancy thingy not work, but we haven't fixed it. Sorry, I went on for too long, but this is just very irritating. No, I mean, I, I think it, it surprised many people here that, that you had here, you had the, 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 the first two instances where these could be used in, in a very public way. And, uh, you know, government officials chose to, to do something quite different. But I think that there are people that, that say it's, it's kind of too early to make you know, a determination on this front to say that these these have failed and they have no purpose whatsoever. I mean, people point to very kind of specific features of, of Argentina and Ecuador's, uh, you know, debt stock as an explanation as to why, you know, maybe it was more favorable perhaps for, for the government to pursue the, the two-limb approach. I mean, first and foremost, you had a significant amount of front-end bonds um, held by players that, that had massive blocking stakes. I mean, Ashmore comes to mind um, in, in both Ecuador and in, in Argentina. Um, Fidelity was, was also big in, in Argentina as well. And uh, I mean, I've heard the, po the point being made that, you know, you had a lot of pushback from these, these front end bondholders and they were never going to kind of be willing to kind of play along with, uh, you know, uh, the single limb vote. And they just simply didn't want the same deal as someone like say that the century bondholders in Argentina. And um, Brad Setzer actually raised this point yesterday um, at a panel uh, with uh, Mark Sobel and Lee Bukait and, and Lee Goss as well, where he said, you know, perhaps maybe Argentina, you know, thought it was easier perhaps to get, uh, you know, more support for, uh, you know, just those short dated bonds, um, get that 51% uh, support than getting maybe all of the votes of, of, of longer dated bonds um, with an equal offer. And so, I mean, I think that there are, are certain things perhaps about uh, the Argentine and Ecuador case that maybe make it so you can't make a blanket statement about these single limbs, but I, I certainly agree with you that there's some uh, disappointment and at least some, um, you know, questions about, you know, the, its applicability going forward. I think you're being way too kind. I, I think this is, this is, sorry, I think this is bullshit. These people just don't want to admit that they wrote a crappy clause. And it, 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 it is, so that, like we know why it didn't work. It has nothing to do with some special circumstance here. It has to do with the fact that 
it works when a country goes into full-scale default and all of the debt is accelerated and you have a bunch of judgment creditors, then the difference in maturity doesn't work, uh, doesn't matter. And so therefore you can sort of have this uniformly applicable uh, model that everybody presumably would, would agree to if you can give them a good enough transaction. But without that kind of scenario, you're gonna have people with different interests. And therefore, the one limb thing is not going to work. And I just think that the, the, the fancy organizations who took a lot of credit for all of this, uh, including institutions where we have good friends who probably will not speak to me again after this, but I just think they're not willing to fess up that they gave us a crap model. So, I mean, I guess, I guess then I, I would like to pose a question back to you is, is what do you kind of think that should be done about it then? I mean, if these are these are kind of this is the structure in which bond documents uh, or, or uh, you know sovereign debt issuers are are uh, this is the the framework in which that they're using. So, I mean, where do we go from here then? I think that question's for Mark. I was going to say, <laughs> Mitu has a model clause that he will be publishing on his personal website, mitugalati.com, uh, within the next 12 hours. So that's probably where you'll find the answer. I, I don't think that this is a solvable problem. You can, you have a choice between setting, uh, creating sort of a standard voting mechanism that uh, allows people to to hold out under some circumstances and some conditions, or adopting mechanisms and the easiest way to do it would just be to issue local law debt that effectively leaves everything up to the government's discretion. But once you try to draft a clause that says, all right, here's a detailed voting procedure that's trying to balance what are unavoidably all of these conflicting interests, you're going to have gaps. Um, I don't know that the, the current clause to answer my own original question, I don't know that it blew up so much as that um, this was the dispute that happened in this case. They're going to fix it. Uh, they already have made some changes, but there's going to be another dispute next time around. Because if you want to hold out, you've just got to find one chink in the armor. And these are long, complicated contracts. There's always going to be a chink in the armor. But Mark, I'm, I'm going to... You, you're you're letting them get away with murder here. So they've they fixed they put these little pathetic band aids on uh, the document for Argentina and Ecuador. Which if those countries are in trouble in nine to twelve months, those band aids ain't gonna work. And they didn't fix this uniformly applicable crap that you and I have written about. We can't actually figure out what it means. And that seems to be. At the core, I mean, they didn't fix it. All they did was put little band-aids uh, so that everybody could escape these current deals. And they're not facing up to the bigger problem. So I, I, I want you to say yes here, and I want Colby to agree with us. I know you won't. You guys actually think, oh, no, no, everybody did all this stuff. But look at what's happening on the market. So look at the Bermuda document. The Bermuda document is not... Uh, adopt the fixes that uh, Ecuador and Argentina already put out there. And the documents themselves have now become even longer and more convoluted. 
and they were near impossible to understand in the first place. And now you just have more gibberish in this. <laughs> Me too. Let me, I'm going to say one thing, then I'm going to shut up because, uh, because I, I think Colby was here. Um, um, it's not a fixable problem. The scenario you're describing is one where you've got an investor base with a bunch of wildly diverging interests, and you can't draft a contract that's going to neatly uh, wrap up our restructuring in that situation unless you draft a contract that just lets the government do what it wants. That's my view. And now I'm going to shut up. I will let you two debate this for, for the end of time because I think you'll have more to add than I will. But um, for all the people that are kind of throwing their support behind these types of, uh, of arrangements, I think that you know, they try to point, they, I think you would need to see a bit more evidence, I think is what they probably come down and say. Kobe, thank you so much. But I have to say, look, I mean, we are going to have over a dozen defaults coming. And the fact that the documents can't be fixed now does not bode well for when we have a full set of sovereigns all going into default at the same time. It, unless there's some magic solution people are figuring out, I am petrified by the fact that the solutions we have now don't work even before we have had that situation. So, but I, I, as you know from having known me for a long time, I am ever the pessimist and Mark is more optimistic and you are more optimistic. So I am probably wrong. But any last words for us, Colby, that are on the optimistic front? <laughs> um, no, I think I, I've said my piece on that front, but uh, I, I guess uh, we'll just leave it with you, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Colby. No, glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Mm -hmm.